The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar is proud to be a part of America's booming solar industry. The company's solar manufacturing facility supports 400 U.S. workers directly contributing to the burgeoning clean energy economy. That's not the only benefit of being located in the U.S. Mission Solar's Texas-based headquarters make it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. With a state-of-the-art R&D lab, Mission Solar pushes cutting-edge technology to the consumer after passing it through the highest reliability testing the solar industry has to offer. You can find out more about Mission's solar cells and modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. Welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, uh, coming to you mobile this week from our conference room at GTM Boston headquarters. Thanks for joining us. And this week, paradise lost. Small island countries are deeply reliant on expensive diesel, and that makes them uniquely vulnerable to oil market changes and geopolitics. Localized renewables are one clear solution, but those present their own challenges. We'll talk with an expert on island energy markets. Then, a pivotal moment for nuclear. After much scrutiny, the UK government approved the 3.2 gigawatt Hinkley Point C nuclear expansion. It's a historic test case for the competitiveness of nuclear. Finally, a pivotal moment for America's solar industry. We'll dig into a debate about where the country's biggest solar lobbying group needs to turn its attention. I turn my attention now to my co-hosts. Let's say hello. Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solution is in Washington. Hello, Catherine. Hi, I hope everybody's well. It's beautiful. Although this morning I had to say goodbye to my second born, my 24-year-old, took off in a U-Haul this morning for Fort Collins, Colorado. Is that the, the, the son whose graduation you missed when we did our live show? No, that was like a middle, that was a middle <laughs> school graduation. Now, this is my son oh, right. who's going into renewable energy finance. So he's got a place to live and now he just needs a job out there. Anybody in Colorado can help. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to the day when we get him on the podcast then, when he becomes an expert in renewable energy finance. Hey, speaking of renewable energy finance, Jigger Shaw's in New York City. He's uh, with Generate Capital. Hey, Jigger, how are you? Hey, how's it going? I missed you guys. Great, we missed you too. I can't believe I didn't even see, see you at SPI. We were just, I was just jumping around from meeting to meeting. And speaking of this week's topic, um, islands, that's, that's a, one that's near and dear to your heart, right? Yeah, we... Um we started that uh, at the Carbon War Room when I was running it and uh, got a great, um, you know, like generous gift from the Dutch Postcode Lottery of 10 million euros um, to kick it off. So I, I, I have a very special place in my heart for that. Our guest also has a special place in her heart for this area. Leslie Labrudo is the director of Islands Energy at the Clinton Foundation, where she leads an effort to deploy $300 million for renewables projects on small island nations. Hey, Leslie, welcome. Thanks for having me. And a special shout out to Scott Moskowitz for connecting us. Yes, Scott Moskowitz, one of our solar researchers, fellow engineers. Small world here in the energy world. So we're going to talk about energy today. But first, some of our listeners may have perked up their ears when they heard the word Clinton Foundation. So I think it's appropriate to provide a little bit of context for our listeners. And then, Leslie, I just had one question for you. So the Clinton Foundation is currently under a bit of a microscope because of 
Hillary Clinton's presidential bid. And the foundation was established by former President Bill Clinton. It was set up to tackle a broad range of problems, health care, women empowerment, education, energy access, and climate change. And in order to fund those efforts, the foundation takes money from corporations and from governments like a lot of foundations do. So some of those donors did do have political agendas, right? And they were directly relevant to Clinton's work as Secretary of State. And so no explicit quid pro quo was shown, but experts have come out and said that they believe donors kind of had better opportunities to present their cases to the State Department on matters relevant to them. So we're not here to litigate this issue or to really talk through it, um, but it's relevant because the Clinton Foundation is going to undergo some restructuring if Hillary Clinton becomes president. And yesterday, Inside Climate News came out with a story on how spending for the Clinton Climate Initiative would be narrowed under that plan. So that same story mentioned the Island Nations Renewables Project, Leslie, which is run in partnership with the Carbon War Room and the Rocky Mountain Institute. And according to that story, you're, you're working toward raising hundreds of millions of dollars in private funding to continue that work. And when we invited you a few months back, it wasn't to talk about this political issue. But I'm just curious if you could tell us, how is this potential restructuring impacting your work? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. And I, I know it can be quite complex. So it's a, a good chance to demystify this. Uh, so the Clinton Foundation, just for everyone's knowledge, has 11 different initiatives underneath it. And many are aware of the Clinton Global Initiative. Um, and of course, yesterday, we celebrated the 12th and final Clinton Global Initiative annual meeting. Uh, the initiative I represent is the Clinton Climate Initiative, which is another one of the 11. And this works across clean energy, energy efficiency, oceans and forests to really implement solutions on the ground. So per the announcements that were made for international initiatives such as ours, in the event that Secretary Clinton does win the election, the plan for international work is to transition this work to longstanding and trusted partners. Um, we're working on identifying these partners, and our work would only be transitioned after the election pending the outcome. So really, our goal is to do this in a way that's responsible for our partners, for the recipients of our work, and primarily uh, want to ensure that uh, the donor funds that we've been receiving can continue this work um, with our partners so that it's not disruptive and people um, in island nations uh, across Africa and across the world can continue receiving the support from the foundation uh, just through the work of our partners. So the work will continue, but there could be some restructuring. And now since we've gone down this route and we went into detail about the, the Clinton Foundation, I think it uh, is important to remind our listeners that the Washington Post actually did uncover that Donald Trump's charitable foundation paid more than $250,000 for Trump's legal fees and other perks. So that has an explicit paper trail and actually does <laughs> violate federal law. I think it's important to balance out this conversation. Um, that was our longest aside ever for this show, by the way. So now onto the real topic, islands energy. Islands make up like 20% of countries around the world, if I'm not mistaken. And that's something I just learned this week, uh, watching an interview with you, actually. And many of them are small islands that are completely dependent on diesel, forcing many people into fuel poverty. So fuel poverty is when a person spends more than 10% of their income on energy. Leslie, round out this picture for us. Um, how else does this fossil fuel dependence make island countries vulnerable? And, and why are you devoting resources to this issue in particular? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head with that opening number that one fifth of the world's countries are indeed uh, small island developing states. And when you look at why they're going to 
hopefully not, but are staying developing states, it's because you look at their costs that they're paying for electricity. And on on average, we're seeing up to three to four times uh, the cost per kilowatt hour in islands that we're uh, seeing in places like the United States. So uh, in the United States, we pay about 10 cents per kilowatt hour, as we all know. And in islands, we're seeing up to 35 to 40 cents per kilowatt hour. So on a GDP basis, uh, we're, we're seeing that islands can spend up to 20% of their GDP on oil expenditures. And again, here in the United States, it's about 8%. So how does this really all tie together? Well, on a household level, Island nations and islanders are paying a much larger sum of their income for electricity. And this underpins development when you look at hotel industries, when you look at manufacturing. Um, and again, on a household level, it's really tough to predict out your operating costs when the cost of electricity is going to fluctuate so ri- wildly. And um, you're just still looking at uh, imported diesel as your primary fuel source. Again, 95 to 99% of electricity generated uh, on islands is from uh, imported diesel, um, thus causing a pretty pretty much a, a conundrum when it comes to how these islands can develop into stronger economies. I read a really interesting stat this week that uh, Jamaica spends more money on fuel than it gets from revenue from tourism. That's a pretty stark stat. I didn't realize just how much these island nations were paying for energy. I mean, I, I guess I, I, I did because I know that they're so dependent on diesel, but that's a pretty stark stat. That's absolutely right. I mean, I've gone to, I, I travel to islands quite often. I consider myself one at this point and um, an islander. And to be honest, it's, uh, you know, you speak with taxi drivers or just, you know, um, the average Joe on the street, and it's such a struggle. I mean, sometimes a fourth of their um, a, a fourth of their income is going to pay the bills just to keep the lights on um, from a utility perspective. So one of the things that I figured out when I was um, at the Carbon War Room was that this is often just purely political. Right. I mean, there's a lot of technologies that you can deploy that have quick paybacks and really can reduce the cost of power there. I mean, we brought GE and Siemens in with the Cambridge Energy Research Associates to map out entire new electricity grids for Aruba, St. Lucia, other places. But getting these uh, deployed, I mean, five years later has been very difficult. You know, it's that's it's that that's spot on when it comes to stakeholder engagement. I mean, you often have conflicting agendas. So we start with the government, and you have a, a Ministry of Energy who might say, "Hey, we want to go. We're going to be 100% renewable by 2020." And meanwhile, the utility is sitting across the table, simply rolling their eyes, saying that's technically and quite honestly, economically not possible. So you know, the utility is looking for reliability. They're looking for cost containment. Uh, the the ministry is looking for energy independence. And when you don't have aligning visions, then you're going to get stuck at a stage when you're never going to see steel on the ground. So I think it's right. I mean, you're you're um, talking about. Uh, governments that may not have the most up-to-date data, and then utilities that have a lack of data, and then to think that a project is then going to move forward um, uh, and actually be cost competitive uh, and result in re- 
rate reduction is virtually impossible. And, and this politics issue stretches to geopolitics, too. So Venezuela has long supplied Caribbean islands with cheap oil. And that has become a challenge for Venezuela because of low oil prices. But you've seen uh, a resistance to transition because of this type of geopolitics, where a country like Venezuela will come in and supply cheap oil for political gain. Um, can you just talk about Petro Caribe and maybe some other initiatives that supply islands with cheap oil for political reasons? Sure. So under the Petrocrete program, uh, we see longstanding contracts between uh, island nations buying oil from Venezuela at subsidized costs. And by doing so, it does create a bit of a, a dependency on cheap oil. Um, but as you mentioned, those days are, are rapidly dwindling and dwindling fast. So island nations that we're working with are eager, very eager to look at sources to become uh, energy uh, independent. They want their own own resources to be explored. They have some of the best solar, wind, and geothermal resources um, we've seen globally. And for them not to start exploring ways that they can become independent and, um, and really move away from the volatile prices, move away from the long-term contracts, uh, really develop some skills in-house is what's driving uh, our program to provide that support that islands often need. Because, you know, again, as I mentioned, a utility and a government um, sometimes only have so much knowledge and data sets to work from. Our goal really is to come in, uh, align align our stakeholders, and then dig into the data. You know, how much renewable energy can your grid take on right now, tomorrow, you know, with no major transmission and distribution upgrades so that we can start the process of actionable, uh, bankable steel-on-the-ground projects that are going to result in rate reductions in the long term um, while not compromising the reliability of the system. So, Leslie, I was talking to my friend Troy Miller from SNC Electric, who has been working um, in particular on island energy at in, on Catalina Island, um, off of uh, 22 miles off the coast of Long Beach, California. And for four years, they've had a battery in place that they've been able to um, wean the island off of diesel, similar to the islands that you've been working on. The battery has been doing really well. The solar plus storage, and you know, wind certainly could also fall into that mix. Is really become the, the cost has come down significantly and is quite cost competitive. He um, mentioned that one of the issues, of course, is financing and trying to make sure that you do have the financing to do these projects. And I noticed that in some of what I was reading about um, the work that you're doing, that batteries have been considered too expensive. And yet with the cost coming down, it strikes me that if you can get the financing and if you can get the government programs right, that you really could do full renewables with backup storage. So many of our island partners are asking for batteries to be built into um, the RFPs that are put out on on the streets. And for good reason, as you mentioned, the costs are rapidly uh, dropping. Uh, we think, you know, from what we've seen, solar, wind, and geothermal, which are really the 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 three um, primary sources that we're looking at for clean energy. I mean, just just in the last two years alone, those costs have dropped dramatically. Solar dropped from about thirty two cents a kilowatt hour to twenty five, uh, and wind and geothermal dropped from upwards of thirty cents to about twenty one cents per kilowatt hour. And then starting to couple it with battery storage is where we want to see, um, and where our island partners want to see. Uh, more deployment. Because as you mentioned, we're never going to see high penetration renewable energy on islands without battery storage. Uh, The only thing that really counters that is that 
some of these islands that we're working in, uh, you know, their their policies are, are just a bit outdated. So it doesn't really support uh, battery storage quite yet. So there's a, a bit of catch up that needs to be done. Uh, and in addition, you know, we're talking about some pretty remote locations. So you have to not only um, acquire the battery, but but get it there and then think about a responsible, of course, disposal uh, mechanism, given that, you know, some of these islands are thousands of miles away from the nearest mainland. So the Carbon War Room and the Clinton Climate Initiative, I think, have both tried to do, um, to execute their programs really around education and and working with the heads of state. I wonder whether you think that this is going to be successful in a timely fashion, unless you actually have a stick as well, like, right, in terms of helping some of the biggest loads on the island actually exit the grid um, and put more pressure on the utilities. Our program it really does beyond education. I'd say that we're we're trying to get into um, you know into the rooms of the utilities to understand a bit more about uh, about what's going on, not only just on the technical perspective, but on an economic as well. So when it comes to the modeling uh, that our team will help work on, we're talking about you know load forecast models, least cost supply models, um, really strong grid integration studies that can start digging into the weeds of you know where are your where are your uh, biggest loads on the island. How can we look to reduce those from an efficiency perspective? But also, um, how can we find uh, the least cost solution for you? And again, it's so important for us to stay technology neutral. So, you know, we do want to assess if diesel is going to be more competitive. Um, you know, we're not trying to, say, push renewables if it's not going to make sense. But for the most part, it does require more than just education. It requires a, a quite a systems approach. Um, and it's going to require a lot of iteration. So, you know, you don't just do this once and walk away and say, you know, here you go, here's the right solution. Uh, you need to stay with the utility, stay with the government, uh, look at the economics behind each of the solutions and find the one that's going to align with what everyone's looking for. Um, and at the end of the day, that is absolutely going to also require uh, looking at demand uh, on the island and figuring out ways where transportation, building stock, households, hotels can really reduce the amount of energy that they're consuming. So one, um, Leslie, one potential source that's a little cross-cutting would be landfill solid waste. And my daughter, I remember, did her study abroad in the Cayman Islands, and she said the two things you could always see from anywhere on the island were the cruise ship and the landfill. And so I'm just wondering from a waste stream perspective um, on energy, on just you know, what you ha- how you have to deal with all of this waste, and then just also from the social, the poverty aspects of these islands where they're located, you know, how are you all dealing with that component? You know, every time I go to um, an island nation and meet with a ministry of environment and energy, they say the, the number one and two problems are the high cost of electricity and then waste management. Um, so that's that's spot on. And if I could count the number of times I've had to walk around in high heels on landfills, um, I think it would be it would be pretty funny. But uh, but in reality, it, it's true. We're talking about land constricted islands um, and they do generate a lot of waste. As as you said, cruise ships come in. Uh, there's a high tourism industry uh, and and many of the uh, tourist islands aren't really thinking about their waste consumption. Um, so it's going to these very, uh, very overfilled uh, landfills. So when we look at the issue, we notice that it's really an, an upstream issue. Um, looking at how islands can start developing really strong national waste management strategies is, is critical to the problem. And this is something that CCI dedicated a lot of its time to in the past. Um, 
um, we just found that with our need to focus on electricity, um, by the time that you work out um, the upstream uh, waste management solutions, you really need to just ensure that you have the volume so that that can feed into waste energy systems. And uh, each and every day we see new uh, incredible breakthrough technologies with how we can take waste and convert it into electricity, which is uh, the ideal way to take um, two birds and, and kill with one stone to address uh, an energy issue and a waste issue on islands. And fortunately, um, there's some incredible partners that we have working on this exact issue, such as the World Bank and um, the United Nations um, Environment Program. Uh, they're working with islands to really develop those upstream national waste management strategies so that in due time, uh, we can see waste to energy become a reality that's uh, not only, again, solving a social issue, as you mentioned, but also providing a, an economic alternative to um, just open open air burning, which we see in a lot of a lot of island nations. We had a pretty good conversation recently about energy access. And we've pointed out a few times on this show that many of the big multilateral banks are really not structurally set up to support a lot of the small scale solar that has been booming and has been supporting a lot of entrepreneurs in developing countries. And is there an equivalent problem for island nations? Um, is it is it difficult to finance and support some of these smaller scale projects? Is it difficult for entrepreneurs to get loans locally? What are some of the financing barriers and do they mirror what we see in, um, in, in other developing countries? So fortunately, there's a lot of capital on the scene. If you look at banks like the Caribbean Development Bank, um, and then more of the global institutions like the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank, they are ready to move and they are eager to deploy capital, especially towards renewable energy projects uh, and energy efficiency uh, interventions that are going to be that are going to be fruitful. Um, so the issue is definitely not a dearth of capital. Um, it's that there's just simply not enough well-developed, uh, high-quality bankable projects to invest in at the pace that they want to deploy capital. So our goal is to try and just increase that pipeline, uh, make sure that we're de-risking projects so that when they start doing their diligence on these projects, it's not uh, uh, you know something that was developed by a cowboy uh, who came in and said, you know, these numbers look great, you know, give us a loan. Uh, these are uh, projects that are very well researched, um, have a lot of strong, high quality data around it so that we can start seeing these development banks um, deploying capital at a much more rapid pace. Uh, see, that that actually dives into the issue of sort of the utility versus IPP model on islands. And, and certainly it's not, it's not one or the other, but we'll find often that um, if utility develops a project, they're getting interest rates that are much better um, because they are local and, uh, you know, they're, they're looking for maybe a different set of returns than a, an IPP. So from a development bank perspective, I'd say for islands, it's really the fact that the capital's there. Um, we just want to increase the number of projects that are physically moving and, and ready to take that um, so we can result in some steel on the ground. Jigger, your uh, philosophy over at Generate Capital is to finance projects that are in markets that are underserved. Is this a compelling sector for you? Have you guys thought about island nations? We have, but in general, what we're doing is, is you know, destroying the utilities, right? We're going in and saying this, you know, resort like sands or 
or others, you know, like is going to go off grid. And uh, not unlike the Catalina Island example that Catherine talked about. And the utility company basically just suffers and says, we just lost 12% of our energy sales. Um, and I honestly just don't think the utilities in the Caribbean are going to make it. My sense is, is that they, the costs of the microgrids that Catherine was talking about are so cheap now. In New York State, the microgrids under New York Prize are delivering power all in at $0.08 cents a kilowatt hour. And so I just can't imagine, even with the tariffs and all the other costs, how you could deny powerful resorts from going off grid. Yeah, Leslie, is that a fair way to characterize it? Are we seeing some the beginnings of creative destruction in some of these uh, islands? <laughs> well, certainly the other component to that is policy and the fact that some of the uh, islands that we're working in have fairly robust policies that, you know, really try to preserve um, the utility. And, and there's there's good reason for that in many cases. Um, you know, sometimes when you when you have a, an island that's moving towards IPPs, you're, you're seeing redundant assets. Um, it, it could decrease reliability on the system. And it certainly doesn't spawn, you know, local job creation and ensure that uh, the utility can stay solvent. So, you know, in, in some instances, um, we think that, you know, IPPs do make sense. In other islands, uh, these utilities are, are really sophisticated, and uh, they have great management and provide a quite reliable service. Take Lusalek and St. Lucia. They're an absolutely superb utility um, that does a great job with their load forecasting. And, you know, if, if they can work towards increasing the amount of utility-owned assets on the grid that are renewable, then it's a win-win and uh, and hotels and whatnot won't be forced to develop their own microgrids or or off-grid solutions, uh, they can actually get clean energy from the grid. And I just had one last question because I realized that we left this question out, or at least we didn't express we didn't address it explicitly, and that is low oil prices. I mean, around the world, you've seen a number of projects. Uh, challenged because of the economics of oil. And with low oil prices come low diesel prices. And now all of a sudden you see less appetite for solar and wind projects and other uh, renewable energy projects, waste to energy, geothermal, uh, cogeneration. Can, can you characterize how low oil prices have impacted this market? Because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are kind of wondering, you know, we, we always talk about how oil, oil markets and solar and wind are not interlinked. People get that now. But when you get down to these island countries, they are interlinked. Sure. So, you know, a, a couple thoughts here. And one is that I think consistently across our partners, since they, uh, islands especially, have seen volatile prices, uh, they don't believe that the low prices are here to stay. So, you know, they've been in the low times, they've seen the, the high times before, and uh, they're not really convinced that uh, the low energy uh, oil prices are, are here to stay. So that's one. They're coming in with a bit of skepticism about the low uh, oil prices. And second, you know, you have to remember that by the time oil and diesel get to these islands, there's already a, a big premium on on what they have to see. So, you know, they don't benefit from sometimes the, the direct uh, low prices. And then third, um, you know, some of the utilities that we work with have, have locked themselves into longer term contracts. So they're not even seeing uh, the immediate effects of low oil prices. They're still paying prices from from years back, given the hedges that they that they had to make. So for us, I, I think that the appetite is, is the long game. I 
I think that islands um, on the government and utility perspective are taking the long game. And at the end of the day, um, they want to be energy independent. And no matter what the prices of oil, uh, the only way they're going to get there is through local, uh, really exploring local renewable energy uh, energy options. Leslie Labrudo is the director of Islands Energy at the Clinton Climate Initiative. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Stephen. And our island theme continues. Now we're just talking about a much bigger island and a much bigger and more controversial energy project. The UK government decided last week to approve the Hinkley Point C nuclear project, that 3.2 gigawatt plant that's going to cost $23 billion US dollars to build. It's being built by the French government-owned mega-utility EDF with help from Chinese government-owned China General Nuclear. The UK government itself will buy the power at a set price over 30 years. This is the UK's first nuclear plant in two decades. And after yet another review, new Prime Minister Theresa May threw her support behind the project for both economic and climate reasons. But the decision to finally approve the project after nine years of debate drew wide condemnation from experts and economists across the spectrum. The project is too expensive, and the energy markets are just too uncertain for this project to make any sense, they argued. Here's a quote from Michael Liebrich's scathing piece from this week. Hinkley throws a hugely expensive life belt to the drowning French nuclear industry in its overpriced, overcomplicated, overregulated 1970s technology. History will judge Theresa May harshly for not killing this train wreck of a project when she had the chance. And if you remember, Michael Liebrich was on the show a while back. This isn't exactly a lefty. You know, this is a pro-market guy who has uh, tracked financial deals in renewables for a long time. So... This is not necessarily a uh, party lines issue. So is it as sad as Liebrich and others claim? Or seen another way, is it a strong sign that the UK is serious about a diverse low-carbon energy mix? People are debating this now. Catherine, this is just an incredible test for nuclear now. Would you agree with that? Well, I think it's a test for that particular technology of nuclear. And if you only take one metric, decarbonization, and, and it remains static, then... Yes, it will help decarbonization in real numbers. However, there's sort of three big buckets um, of, of controversy with this. One is the technology. So the plant in Flamanville, France, France um, this EPR technology has had safety issues. By the time this is built in 10 years, this is um, going to be very outdated. Nu- some nuclear engineers are saying this particular technology is just inconstructible. Like it's just not worth doing and, and it's you're unable to do it. And that it will be... Um, rendered obsolete. And they're not even looking at small modular nuclear. So this is this one big technology. They put all of their eggs in this one basket. Another big chunk of controversy is around security. So that's going to be um, 7% of their power would come from this plant in the UK. And um, there are a lot of states out there that would like to do harm and could take out a big chunk of their grid by harming their plant. And on the other, on the other issue is that you know if there are any issues just other than security with the plant that it could go down. And then cost is the huge, huge issue. It's going to be one hundred and twenty dollars a megawatt hour 
um, or $7.5 million a megawatt. Okay, gas is like a fifth of the price. Solar is $1.3 million a megawatt. I mean, everything else out there would be cheaper. In addition, what's happened is because they've made this such a huge price, it's pricing all the other nuclear technologies out of the market because no one else can afford to build at those levels. So it seems that um, Lee Breich and others, like I talked to Gerard Reed from Alexa Capital, who has a blog, uh, energyandcarbon.com, and he went through this as well, where from the technology, security, and cost perspectives, this is a really bad deal. So I think a lot of the security concerns are generally overblown. That doesn't mean we should dismiss them. But I don't think that the security problems are as big a deal as the economics here. I mean, this project was proposed back in 2006, 2007, when Tony Blair in 2005 recommitted to nuclear power. EDF proposed this project in 2007, and they said, oh, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have it cooking Christmas turkeys by 2017, I think they said it was. And now this project is not going to get built by at least 2025. Um, by then, as you said, the total cost, the, the net present value of the entire project, when you look at government subsidies, the capital cost, um, the, the electricity sales, is going to be $116 billion. To put that into perspective, bringing Michael Liebrich back into it, I looked up there the BNEF numbers for renewable energy investment globally in 2015, that's one third of the total amount invested globally last year in renewables. So as Liebert put it, the annual subsidy for Hinckley would equal 10% of the UK's net contribution to the EU at the time of the Brexit vote, which was a big political issue and one of the reasons why people voted to get out of the EU. So anyway, the economics really stand out for me here as an argument against this project. I don't know. Like, I guess for me, the thing is, I, I agree that with Catherine that we shouldn't be installing um, technology that has had real problems around cost containment. I thought it was interesting that the, the UK is giving them a fixed um, PPA price indexed to inflation. So if EDF does have additional cost overruns over the $18 billion, then um, they're going to take it on the chin, which I thought was interesting. Um and the other thing I would say is I do think that most of the articles that I read were wrong around this nuclear versus solar and offshore or onshore wind argument. In general, what I would say is that, you know, the big problem with nuclear versus other technologies like you see in Germany is that if you don't build this nuclear plant, you're probably going to ramp up a bunch of gas plants, which we obviously don't want. Um, and that's because the electric utility company doesn't actually believe in energy efficiency and or demand response and load control, right? You actually have the ability to onboard a lot more variable power onto the grid, um, but, but the electric utility doesn't believe in their own abilities to really deploy energy efficiency at scale and demand response and load control skills. So I don't actually think this is nuclear versus renewables. I think this is nuclear versus energy efficiency and demand response and load control. Yeah, and I don't even think that it's all of nuclear. It's just this particular technology that you could probably find other technologies and we're going to continue to find other technologies that are much lower cost and much more efficient. But I totally agree that it that it seems that the UK has not invested enough in efficiency and demand response. And that is that's a huge growth area for them. But with that said, this co- this plant's going to come online in 2025. Consumers are going to be paying... Uh, for 30 years, a fixed price for 30 years. 
and it's true that this is important baseload, uh, low carbon energy that is going to benefit the UK. It's going to represent seven percent of power demand. That's that's um, nothing to turn your nose up at. But 2025, I mean, when this project was proposed in 2006 or 2007, the world was such a different place. Imagine the world in 2000. 25, given how everything is changing. So when you look at when this project does come online, um, I do think it is a Hinkley point versus renewables and storage. Yeah, I mean, I, I get why people pit nuclear versus renewables. But as we've said in the podcast before, nuclear and renewables really aren't competing with each other. I mean, they just really aren't. And I think Catherine's right. This technology that they've chosen is a technology that everyone knows is very expensive and will not get cheaper. Right, and so it seems like if you're going to spend 18 billion, 90 billion um, pounds over um, over 30 years, that you'd actually pick something that was more innovative and cutting edge. Well, they don't compete with each other today, but you've said yourself, Jigger, that you think baseload power is a fantasy. So, on a future distributed grid, in theory, if we have enough storage and we have enough local control, then renewables would compete with nuclear, right? Yeah, but the challenge that we have right now is that that um, that is being held up by the fact that the electric utility companies haven't upgraded their grid operation software. So electric utility companies, even if we gave them a lot of solar and wind plus battery storage, demand response and load control, literally don't know how to manage it. And they basically discount it by 80%. When you look at the 50,000 Nest uh, pilot that SCE just signed up with Nest, um, you know, I'm sure that SC is saying, well, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, fine. But we're not counting on it to you know, provide reliability to our grid. We've spent a lot of time talking about um, why people are against this project. And let's talk about some of the supportive arguments. So Theresa May, I think, has just shown a commitment to decarbonization post-Brexit vote. And there were a lot of political and economic uncertainties after that vote. And she has doubled down, I think, with the support of this project has shown, how, whether you disagree or agree with the approach, has shown, we think the UK needs more low carbon energy and we're going to put support behind this project because, you know, many billions of pounds have already been invested in it and we think it's important. Um, I agree with you, Jigger, that if this project were not built, then a lot of gas plants would probably get built. And James Murray over at Business Green wrote a pretty strong piece this week um, explaining why he's cautiously supportive of the project. And he said, look, I I think that there's a lot of economic challenges here. I kind of disagree with building out massive nuclear projects like this on an economic basis, but you would probably fill in this gap with a lot of fossil fuels. And and he thinks that it is a good political sign that the government's still backing low-carbon low carbon uh, energy. And then just finally, from a political perspective, I do think that it's, it's, it, it's a good story to tell and that it says it tells the Chinese and others that the UK is still a good place to do business post Brexit. 
And that's been a very touchy issue. So uh, the, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, China General Nuclear, a state-owned Chinese company, owns a 33% stake, and there was a lot of pressure uh, from the Chinese to get this deal passed. So it's telling others that, uh, yeah, you can do, do business here in the UK. Yeah, honestly, Stephen, I think that saying that the UK is still good with a low-carbon future is a pretty low bar, because I think most people think that. It's just this country that we're having trouble with our own U.S. Congress. But I think that that is something that from peer pressure alone and from signing, you know, the, the pressure to sign the Paris Agreement, that that's something where, you know, most of the world is headed. Uh, this is going to get built by 2025, maybe later. And the energy markets are going to be completely different then. But more importantly, around the middle of the decade, we need to build massive amounts of low carbon energy before then. You know, we're talking about very rapid changes in the Earth's climate. And if we're serious about developing these technologies because of their carbon profile, then we need to get them in the ground faster. So the, the long time frame for this project is, I think, what brings me the most um, skepticism. On to the last subject. It is a uh, touchy one in the solar industry, one that brings some politics with it and one that brings some strong opinions, as I'm sure Jigger will provide us. The subject is the future of the Solar Energy Industries Association. We brought this one up after Roan Resch left as CEO. Now we're bringing it up again. That's because of a fresh debate, which um, materialized in a series of articles on GTM. That debate is reigniting passions about the future of America's national solar lobbying group. Jigger and Barry Cinnamon wrote a column asking SIA to restructure itself and to put more attention on states and give voice to smaller installers. They're even petitioning SIA to make changes. And then shortly after, SIA board chair Nat Kramer countered, saying that the organization needed to encompass everyone, um, including utilities and big solar companies, as this space gets increasingly diverse and complex. Jigger, what, what material, why did you write this letter? What were you asking for? Well, you know, I am not on the board of SIA, and I haven't been on the board of SIA probably since 2009, but, you know, I just kept getting calls from major residential players, major commercial rooftop players, basically asking me where SIA was. And the the straw that broke the camel's back is that we realized that there was a very likely chance that all of the DG players were going to not renew their membership in SIA next year. And so Barry and I were like, look, man, let's write an article that is very sort of, you know, sort of middle of the road and, you know, not super controversial to be able to force people to have this conversation because I agree with Nat. Nat, by the way, privately told me the same thing. He said, yeah, we thank you for writing that letter because it it started conversations that may end up resulting in a compromise at the October board meeting. Otherwise, we probably would have broken to two organizations. As far as I can tell, people weren't all that receptive to it, though. I mean, at least organizationally, they were kind well, of... Well, SIA's up- not accepting. Yeah. I, I got the sense that people were mostly upset about the petition itself. So what were you calling for in the petition? Well, in the petition, we were calling for a couple of things, right? One is basically making sure that there's a recognition, you know, and Catherine, I'd love your sense of this, that pretty much every piece of legislation passed in the United States around solar was passed with distributed generation votes, it's, you know, legislators and others who actually want to put solar on their house or their mother's house that actually, you know, got them to switch their vote. I can tell you Sarah Baldwin will say that very clearly in Utah. You know, Matt Baker will say that very clearly in Colorado. But 75% of the compliance 
for those laws have come from utility scale solar. So my sense is there's actually a one plus one equals four arrangement here where I think the utility scale guys should, you know, understand that they're passing laws because of the DG guys. And the DG guys have to understand that the utility scale guys probably at the federal level are not going to lift a big finger and like find some sort of compromise. Um, having been in the middle of the ITC battle uh, with you know helping a company that was doing uh, CNI and grid scale, so, so so some of each sector, not necessarily residential. I mean, we had every single person calling every member of Congress, anybody who worked there, anybody who lived anywhere near it, anybody who had it installed. I mean, it was a huge effort. I would not limit it to the rooftop folks. Now, that's the best way to get numbers on DG and getting people to engage congressionally. So, yes, you do have the numbers there, but I think everybody pitched in on this. I think it would be... a. I think we do need to pull everybody together. I think it would be a shame if, for some reason, the larger scale broke away from the DG, only because this industry is just not big enough. We really need to pull together. I do think that SIA needs to do more for on wholesale markets. They need to engage more in FERC to make sure that DG and large scale can participate in those markets. I think they need to do more. I think SIA needs to do more on solutions analysis, like rate design. Right, and, which they deliver. Really analyzing things. But they deliberately don't have a point of view on that, right? And I, I think you misunderstood me, Catherine. I'm not talking about the ITC. I was talking about state-level policy. I mean, no one is signing a PPA for 20 years for a utility-scale project because it's cost-effective. We have way more power than we need. And if the utility companies were in control, they wouldn't sign any more um, power plants, including natural gas, including solar, including wind, because they have more power than they know what to do with. We're selling less power today than we did in 2007. Well, we're a little off track here, and I want to get back to CS priorities, which, you know, I, I think we can all probably recognize that they're in a hard place here. Like, they need to bring in member dues. So the big guys. Well, they need leadership. They, well, need, they need really strong, first. visionary leadership who can bring everybody together and come up with a plan that, you know, aligns everybody around three or four key things that they got to get done that will help everybody in the solar industry and allow everybody to participate and march forward. But they don't have that right now. Right now, they're right. kind of just in triage mode. And that's what we're asking of them. One is make sure the executive director actually has real DG bona fides. Two is make sure that SIA actually takes the mantle on education. And then the third is actually figuring out how um, the state SIAs actually have a real governance role within this federal SIA. Because if you're like, you know, Trinity Solar, for instance, in New Jersey, where you're doing, you know, I think they're doing 70,000 residential solar systems a year. They are not going to join SIA because they're only in New Jersey. So they're members of MSIA where they're working on state level work. But what you're finding is, is that, you know, they, ha they don't want to join SIA because they have no voice there. The solar industry has dealt with this for a long time. There have always been fractures within the industry. So this is not really anything new, but we are going through a pretty major transition within the solar industry and in market design. Um, so it's far more acute this time around. With that said, in talking to people at SIA, like, it's very clear they recognize this shift needs to happen. Whether or not they see it exactly the way you do, that's unclear. And I think, you know, they, they recognize that they need to bring in the big players. They need to make sure everyone has a seat at the table. Um, like, they're not ignoring this. I, I don't want to, like, make, 
the premise of this conversation that Sia is somehow ignoring this conversation. No, I, I completely agree. But I, I think that what most people don't understand is that there are 300 solar installers in the country that have between $5 million and $200 million of revenue a year who are not members of Sia. And they have been solidly profitable for the last five years. And those people are the ones that Barry and I reached out to. And we got them really deeply involved in signing the petition and other things. And we're, we're going to do a trade, right? The trade is you guys are free riders and you have to actually put up $25,000 a year in membership dues in the local state SIAs because that's where you guys care about things. And what we want to do is to transform Sean Gallagher's group away from lobbying at the state level into sort of an ALEC type organization at SIA, where they're supporting the state SIAs with, you know, like policy around net metering or interconnection or all these other things, right? And but but that but that wasn't happening because the SIA staff basically only work with their board members. They have no desire to work with the two hundred people that aren't members of SIA. But I think, as you said, if you can set something up uh, with Sean's group that's like Alec, then you're creating this kind of war room effort where you can really um, you can dive into states, figure out who which state chapters need supporting, who needs the most help, who can learn from each other, because I'll bet those folks in New Jersey will be able to share a lot of what they've done with others if they were if they were given that sort of venue to do so. So maybe have something that allows for that uh, cross-fertilization and for really quick deployment when something pops up in a state that someone needs to react to, um, make sure that that those state chapters and, and their allies get the resources that they need. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that what Barry and I were trying to do is take the pressure out of the pressure cooker. You know, this was going to explode in a big way at the end of the year. And now, at the very least, you have... You know, we talked to most of the board members of SIA. They recognize fully this is a problem. They recognize that they actually haven't taken any actions to solve it. I think the SIA staff are basically, you know, like just deer in headlights going, wait, what is this going to mean for my job? And I understand that. Um, but, you know, we're now having, you know, like, you know, conversations on the side. And people are actually trying to figure out how to solve this. Now, they may not solve it. And in the end, you may end up with the you know, the worst case scenario. But at least now you actually have a real con- dialogue that's outside of the 40 people on the SIA board. I do not envy SIA's position. The solar industry benefits from incredible diversity, but that diversity also makes it very difficult to run a national organization. So they are. there's definitely a, an internal conversation going on about this, and we'll see um, what changes are put forth and what kind of CEO is chosen. You know, the, the CEO choice is really going to dictate where SIA heads next. That's right. So let's. Well, look, if the oil and the gas guys can separate and then get back together, I'm sure the solar community can stick together too. Yeah. I mean, That's API true. is a strong model for how this can work. Let's tell our listeners something they do not know. Time to wrap up the show. Jigger, what's your story this week? So um, I was reading about. Um, Bill McKibben had you know, a piece around the fact that they reran the math on climate and that the fossil fuel frontier has now been met. That like if you take all of the oil, gas, and coal reserves that have already been found and drilled, that just burning all of that stuff over the next 20 years um, gets you to our entire carbon budget. So you know, literally it means that we shouldn't be spending an additional dollar and finding new oil, gas, and coal uh, going forward, which I thought was you know pretty amazing. That's completely terrifying. Catherine, do you have anything that might cheer us up a bit? 
Yeah. So last Friday, after we had taped, the Baker Polito administration in Massachusetts, through Commissioner Judson of the Department of Energy, released a study, a long-awaited study on energy storage, which found that they could get the state of Massachusetts could get up to 1.8 gigawatts of storage and save 2.3 billion dollars and derive benefits from that. So, based on their regulatory policy and recommendations, it looks like they will probably have a, something in the order of. 600 megawatt market by 2025 of installed storage. And this is in addition to the legislation that was passed at the end of the year that said that we they needed a storage mandate in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So um, I think that it, it'll be at least 600 megawatts. If you see the state of California and what that mandate of 1.3 gigawatts did, that created an entire ecosystem and an industry in California that really drove economic development. And I think you'll see the same in Massachusetts. So that is super exciting. Um, The other quick thing is that this week, uh, the Department of Transportation released an autonomous car policy, which is pretty interesting because this is all so new, but it's uh, the National Highway Trade Traffic Safety Administration thought that since there is so much buzz coming up that Uber's already starting to offer autonomous vehicles um, in Pittsburgh, that even though they have drivers in them, that this we need to start having some safety regulations. They need to figure out what the jurisdiction, whether it's state or federal, looks like it's going to be federal because state um, has authority over drivers and federal over cars. So it looks like it's going to be more federal. Um, safety assessments and exemption process. This is all starting a brand new conversation and good for the government to get a little bit in front of it. Um, I just had a quick recap of a recent rec- solar record in Abu Dhabi. There is a uh, solicitation out to develop a 350 megawatt solar farm there. And the Abu Dhabi Electricity and Water Authority reported that six development teams issued bids or preliminary bids for f- below four cents a kilowatt hour. And about a year ago, we were going gaga over four cents a kilowatt hour solar in Austin, Texas, and then in Dubai, and then in Chile. This past August, we saw a contract signed and delivered for 2.9 cents per kilowatt hour uh, for a 120 megawatt project. And now the latest one is this Jinko Solar and Marubeni project for 2.4 cents. God knows if these companies are actually going to make money on these projects, but pretty remarkable that we're even going that low. And we're at the end of the show. Thank you for listening. Also, a big thanks to Mission Solar for sponsoring the show. Find out about Mission's American-made solar cells and modules at missionsolar.com. You can also contact us. We love your show ideas, your comments, podcasts at greentechmedia.com. I'll pass those around to the rest of the team. And subscribe to us. You probably already do. But if you don't, get on it. Pretty easy to find us anywhere. And of course, at greentechmedia.com. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 